Welcome to a very special episode of For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. I'm very excited to share that this is our 50th episode. There are countless people that deserve thanking for helping for fintech's sake get to this point. Brian Unruh, Eric Gerritsen, and the whole MBKC team, the team at Bond, John Zanoff for his continuous support, Ben Milne for always being a sounding board and building me up, Eric Jorgensen for helping me understand that shooters shoot and shippers ship, Lindsey Davis at Atomic for bouncing ideas with me almost every day, all my Fountain City FinTech alums, Ohad Samet, because he's Ohad Samet, and Jesse Jacob for supporting me through the ups and downs every single day. And so, so, so many more. I wish I could thank everyone, but you know who you are, and I thank you sincerely. Being a somewhat momentous episode, I wanted to feature someone close to my heart. I thought about Mr. Unruh and a number of others, but the timing worked out perfectly to have one of my favorite people, a prolific entrepreneur, and and someone who truly inspires me just by being him, my guest today, Ridiman Daz, CEO at Triple Blind. Triple Blind is enterprise data privacy as a service. What's that mean? Great question. My non-technical brain describes it as a technology that allows encrypted algorithms to run on encrypted data sets. Daz and I dig into what this could mean for finance and the world at large. Two more quick housekeeping items. First off, for full transparency, I am an investor in Triple Blind. I explain why later in the episode. Second, we talk about an acronym that a lot of folks might not know offhand. We discuss UMKC, the school that Dawes and I ended up at instead of MIT. Well, Dawes could have gone to MIT at least. UMKC is the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and it happens to be our alma mater where Dawes and I met. And one final but very important piece of appreciation, this episode of For Fintech's Sake is brought to you by vSum. vSum is a no-cost virtual conference exploring the value stack of the internet through live technology briefings and moderated small group discussions. Each virtual conference is limited to 100 people and the spots go fast. Learn more and apply to join at v-sum.com and now, the great and powerful Daz. This has been five years coming or something. I, know, I don't even right? know. I think we talked about doing this like right when I started the podcast two years ago. How long have we known each other? I think I met you for the first time in 2013. We, we At UMKC? At UMKC. And then 2014 is when we first got our our first cup of coffee together. Yep. That was that was a, a memorable experience because I discovered a fellow nerd and that doesn't happen all the time. Mutually, mutually. I don't know if I ever told you what happened after that coffee. Did I ever tell you the no, story of what I, happened while I was driving home? I don't think so. I totaled my car. Oh my God. Yeah. I never told you the story. So no, I, was, I remember we got coffee like down the street on the plaza at Caldi's. Right. I was driving home and somebody just pulled out in front of me and I hit them directly in the back of their car oh because God. Somebody else pulled out in front of them. Anyways, I was, it was a long story and has nothing to do with fintech or anything else in life. But yeah, that oh was God. that was that what happened memorable. directly yeah. afterwards. So I remember I was like, oh my god, that was great. I had so much fun meeting Daz. He yeah. was a lot of shit that well, I don't understand at it all. Was and then mem- ah. memorable for me too because um, I was reading 
things hidden since the foundation of the world. You were, and I had to, before, I had to help you carry it out because it was so heavy. <laughs> you pulled it out of your backpack, set it on the table, and I was worried the table was going to break. Yeah, uh, and and that still continues to be one of my favorite books. Uh, that well, you were saying it was like a like it was like one of Peter Thiel's it favorite is. books yeah. or something. And that's like kind of that. how I discovered it. That you know. When they were at Stanford, Rene Girard was one of the the mentors of Peter Thiel that he calls someone that had a profound impact on him. And I wanted to discover his work and learned about um, things hidden since the foundation of the world. And yeah. it was an incredible read. I mean, it's a hell of a it's a uh, it's a bold title. It is. Right. Yes. A, that's, <laughs> and, if you're and writing that book, that book better be thick. <laughs> absolutely. And, it, and it's such a clear and succinct um, view of the world um, that is almost like a reality distortion field, right? You can believe a certain set of truths about the world, and then you can also believe a certain alternate set of truths about the world. And I can't believe I'm quoting Kellyanne Conway here uh, about you know alternative <laughs> facts, but in in certain cases, you can totally see how two sets of truths might equally explain a situation, and it's formed the foundation of how I come to decide if something is true. Hmm. Um, where, you know, that that book was so profound because now I've gotten into a rhythm of thinking, what are alternate reasons why I might believe or might look at this evidence and conclude this, right? Is there a third reason? Especially, I like this, especially the question, is there a third explainer? Mm -hmm. There's a first explainer, let's say that's using Occam's razor and the minimum number of assumptions made about the external world. And then is there an alternate one where I can make alternate assumptions about the world? And then is there a third explanation that might potentially make sense? And the third one sometimes gets me stuck because I have to really think, right? There's two obvious ones. And then if there's indeed a third uh, independent variable here. Um, I want to discover it, think through it, and then come to a conclusion. Anyway, that was more than what you wanted to hear about. No, I mean, I, things in as you were explaining that, I was just imagining the pain, the, the mental pain that you've gone through since COVID has come about. Like the 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 attempt to explain it in any way, shape or form, much less like the depth of which you try and like you were the ultimate seeker of truth, in my opinion, like to the point where sometimes you ask questions where I'm like, Daz, for God's sake, man, like two plus two equals four. And you're like, but <laughs> what if there is this other scenario in which two plus two could equal five? Have you thought about that? And I'm basically <laughs> at that point tune out because I don't understand what the fuck you're talking about anymore. <laughs> but that's like you. So I can only imagine what the past like, I mean, starting a company, everything else. But yeah, it's been incredible. And, and I've become more and more pragmatic. Not that I was fully an idealist, but there were things about life where I thought I could always go down to first sources and reasons right. from first principles and right. arrive at what I thought, right. you know, the, the right conclusion from to draw is. And I realized in the last year that I'm way too busy to be going to first sources and reasoning from first <laughs> principles on everything in life. What should I eat for breakfast? What is the first source there? What is the first principle there? So, you know, delegated uh, trust uh, yeah. Or, or in my in my tech, in my tech world, federated trust uh, is what I've gotten into a lot in scenarios where that doesn't matter. Yeah, you got to be careful with delegated trust right. these days. Right, you delegate right. your own thinking to someone too much; it's a slippery fucking slope these days. Right. So uh, I could obviously just talk to you about random shit for days, and that's kind of what our friendship is, honestly. But for the sake of a podcast, and for the sake of the listeners, and for the sake of actually like explaining what's going on here. 
give me a little bit about your history. Like take me back to the Dawes childhood, like how you got into technology. I just imagine this two-year-old turning a Lego into a supercomputer kind of thing. Like (laughs) take me back to the early days. So there is, there's a clear memory for me in terms of past and and who I am now, right? Okay. There was a period of me that didn't know what they wanted to do. What you know? Um, I love that. That's even like an alternative person. They right? Like yeah, that, that yeah. Past exactly. Is that a is they. a different person. That totally. Is not a you. Yeah. And that is me between the ages of zero and six, right? And we got our first computer, Windows ninety five computer, um, when I was six years old, and okay. I remember getting it and how that night felt like viscerally today, right? I could not sleep. I was pushing the bed away from me. I was the most excited I had ever been in my entire life. And that is not an exaggeration if you know how I use language and terms, right? I'm not one for extreme expressions of feeling, but that clearly was a special night for me because I had discovered this thing and was it your computer? Like, was it bought for you? It was, was bought it as a family, family computer, but yeah. I was clearly, um, clearly the the person most fascinated by right. it, right? Because right. I grew up in a family of doctors, and they knew the utility of a computer. Yeah, uh, and I saw this endless world of possibility, right? Hmm. And and I started tinkering with it, and it just so happens that my uncle uh, is a professor of computer science. Uh, and my mother, when she noticed that I was taking a special interest to this, um, she called him up and said, hey, he's really interested in this computer thing. What should we do? What should he read? Yeah. And the book that was recommended to me was Kernigan and Ritchie's The C Programming Language. Now, <laughs> and you were what, seven? I was six, right? So, and this is, this is a life quintessentially Dawes story. Right. And so, the, the, if you know the C programming language, it's the classic from the 1970s. It's what introduced C into the world. And I read this thing and, and I'm digesting maybe 10% of what it is. Like, 10% I was still a lot, no, right, but, I was, but I was coloring. And not inside the lines. You know, I was like, I was like, is that blue or purple or red? I don't know. But I like how I made that dinosaur look. And you're like, well, I don't know. I'm only understanding part of the C sharp. Right. C sharp wasn't even a thing. It was just C. It's C. And and I'm looking at this and I'm like, integer. What is an integer? The way they're using it here is a number. But... And then I knew what decimals were, but it was, they were talking about it in floats. I was like, what is floating here? Why is it called that? Um, and, but, but I, I immediately, I found a C plus plus or a C rather turbo C compiler and I devoured that book and I still have a copy of it. It is laminated. It is my, it is what altered the slope of my life, right? I was, if you think about it as the y-intercept and the, and the, and the slope, there is clearly a flatlining period of my life where I didn't know. And I was just trying to figure out what will I do with my life? And then there is a slope after that moment with, uh, you know, time in the, in the other axis where you can definitely yeah. see, all right, interest in life, this is just, where I'm going. just, you yeah. know, product market fit. You sound like is, a born again Christian that found the Bible. <laughs> right. Right. It was that kind of a moment for me. Yeah. I was like, I have found truth, yeah. right? I can reason with this. I right. can do anything I want. And right. 
So between the ages of six and 12, all I did was learn programming languages. I learned C and C++ and Java, which was then a novelty. Then Microsoft introduced C Sharp and Visual Basic and Visual Basic.net. Yeah. You know, I could go on and on. But Me too. I, That's a lot like my <laughs> 6 to 12 for me was very similar. So I get Well, it. I was yeah. a nerd, right? So that is I'm all I did. I was You're just smarter, but continue. <laughs> and the uh, what I what I struggled with is what do I do with this, right? I mean, I, I saw the consumer software that was being built. I was like, I'm going to go build the next Word or the next Excel. But it seemed like a stupid idea because they existed. Why would you want an, another one? So because all I was doing was learning programming languages, I decided that I was going to write my own programming language. That was the second inflection point of my life. So that I am a 12-year-old kid here. You know, there, there were pieces of different programming languages that I liked and admired. And I thought, uh, you know, hodgepodge language, taking the best features of all of these would be the ideal programming language in my world, right? And and that was the second most profound experience because a programming language is how you speak to a computer, right? It's how you speak. Uh, your, you have to articulate what you want the universe in bits and bytes to be for the the computer to do whatever wonderful thing it is doing. Right. So, and and human language is harder to to develop because you know I, I I do have a slang that I use and only my brother understands, but you know it's limited to my brother, and I'm not going to go teach you how to speak in an invented language that that I don't. Shit, dude! I thought but, we were friends. I want to know the <laughs> slang. We'll we'll talk later. We'll yeah. talk later. But I'd so, like to know. Um, but but the programming language it, it could be nearly universal. And I struggled with it. I spent two years working on this thing. and Between 12 and 14. Right. I struggled with it. Continue. And, you know, like <laughs> certain things I thought I understood and I'd lacked the, either the math background in certain cases or I'd lacked um, just a, a, a way to think about syntax. And, and that had another set of profound um impact on me because not only did I learn how to write my, my programming language, which was what I set out to do, but right. I learned about linguistics. I learned about philosophy. I learned about how to express yourself. Yeah. It, Syntax in English too. Correct. Exactly. I, I got there and... so great at a programming language is something called a non-contextual grammar. I got so, so much better at contextual grammar, even using English to its uh, you know fullest capability. My writing improved. Huh. I've never heard that. Explain that distinction to me. Is it as obvious as it sounds where non-contextual is just yeah, like... Yeah, there is no is, ambiguity in a computer right. programming statement, whereas yeah. an English statement can be interpreted in multiple ways. So yeah, you and have this, to this layer in context. Right here is exactly. Contextual. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, you know, in... in, 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 uh, in, in Conversationally, I I started reading you know Noam Chomsky and those kinds of just philosophers, linguists who were thinking about the history and um, and how language formed, right? And so uh, around that age is also when I lost my dad, which was another you know if you will profound impact on me. Uh, and and. I, where where were where where were you in the world at this point? At, at this point, I'm in a disputed region between India and China in the eastern part 
there. Uh, Assam, Arunachal Pradesh is sort of, it's, it's one of those regions that Google Maps puts in in dotted boundaries. Right? Ah, I see. Um, okay. And, and my goal in life at that point is to work at Microsoft because, you know, I had a Windows computer. I yeah. had a series yeah, yeah. of Windows computers. I thought Microsoft was the definition yeah. of innovation. They yeah, built like, new I things love, and I, I used movies. them. I want to go work at Blockbuster. Exactly. Like 20 so years later, like, oh, that, shit. That was the goal. Of, yeah. That was all I wanted to do with my life. And yeah. I, I remember trying to figure out, okay, I don't have a lot of financial resources. I'm being raised by a single mother here. Both your parents were teachers, right? Doctors. Doctors, sorry. Yes. My dad was a hematologist. My mom's a rheumatologist. So, um, but, you know, in, in, in those countries, you don't really make that much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I was tr- always trying to figure out how, how would I ever end up in the United States to work at Microsoft, right? That was my goal um, yeah. in life. And then, I, uh, as it turns out, I had an uncle uh, in, in, at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where I applied for college, and I got a full ride, um, and, I, and I took it. Um, and my mother's only restriction on where I went was, you know, can you... Uh, can you be somewhere where if you're in trouble, I can call somebody. Yeah. Right. And that meant that criteria. So I ended up in Kansas city. Had you ever heard, I mean, other, I guess you had family here, so that was, yeah, well, um, yeah, that's a whole another story about how I remember what, what UMKC is it, when in, when I was in fifth grade, another uh, close friend of mine, uh, came to UMKC and I, and I went to see him before he left. And I was like, where are you going to go to college? And he said, UMKC. And I was like, all right, four letters. I should never forget them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and this is eight years before I apply for college. And this is a true story. Wow. And I was like, all right, I'm going to apply to MIT and Harvard and all the usual suspects, but I will never not apply to UMKC. I knew four letters, right? And this is pre-internet, so I never... We got lucky, man. I've never heard this story, and I'm super grateful for how this ended up. Yeah, so, you know, uh, uh, so I got into those other schools, right? But the challenge is now you need to show liquid assets of over $100,000 in your parents' bank account that could be used in case financial aid went fell through. Right. I was not eligible for uh, student loans or yeah. any of those debt instruments, which probably plays into some of the fintech work that you're doing. Um, I'm especially a fan of Empower Financing, which is doing U.S. dollar loans for international students, but yep. that's a different story. Um, but you know, I had didn't have access to any of any debt of any sort, so I had to go somewhere where you know I could show, even if I lost my scholarship, that we had some assets to cover one year of tuition. And what, why was it was the lack of ability to get any kind of student loan debt facility? Just simply what you mentioned before, just the you're not a U.S. citizen. Correct. Yeah. No, no, no non-U.S. citizen can get U.S. federal aid or wow. student loans. Right. Yeah. So well, add that to the list of reasons that we shoot ourselves in the foot when it comes to our technology ecosystem. But yeah. So most most foreign students have to show financial ability in their ability to pay for for education that they come. Yeah. Yeah. I parked um, next to a lot of Lamborghinis when I went to UMKC, actually because of that specific thing. Yes. Um, so anyway, that's how I end up at UMKC. And uh, and at that point, you know, Microsoft is starting to lose its glory, right? This is the Vista period. I'm starting to question my motive in life so far has been to go work at Microsoft, build cold software. Is that really what I want to do? And uh, luckily enough, I 
got something called a golden ticket to Microsoft, which was essentially a, a way for you to decide, you know, if you want to work at Microsoft doors open, you got to uh, wow. go to Microsoft and meet with all the teams. <laughs> Never thought of Bill Gates as Willy Wonka, but right. that's interesting. And, and you got to meet Bill Gates. And, yeah. You know, you could see that he's using an iPhone, not not a Windows phone, oh, or I yeah. noticed that at least. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, while it was incredible, I also realized that it's just clearly it's not the only place where innovation's done, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I had a chance to do several internships during that period. I got a chance to do research projects, and I, I developed as a person as much as a computer scientist. And uh, and and I realized that working at Microsoft was no longer my only motive in life. My motive in life was to work at the edge of what's possible and go figure out if something else was also possible hmm. at the edge. Mm -hmm. And um, so here I find myself uh, today, what I would call myself is a deep tech entrepreneur operator where uh, the right, right thing for me often is at the edge of what's possible and bringing that to things tangibly that make a difference either in, in uh, how we do business or how we bring that into the world that enables new opportunities to grow. So that has been how I spent my adult life. It has. So take us to iVerify. Talk me yeah. through. That's like kind of the, let's go iVerify and then I have many triple sure. questions. So iVerify was, <laughs> was an incredible experience because we took something that in 2008 existed as a digital camera, the most expensive one you can buy and the most expensive CPU you can buy, right. working together over two hours to verify the identity of a person, right? Two hours. Yeah, I didn't. Over I, knew, I knew you were using DSLR and V1 and all that, but right. I didn't know it was taking two hours. Yeah, because you had to do the processing. You yeah. had to do there was a lot of yeah, manual steps, segment it manually, and those yeah. kinds of things. Whereas it was unbelievable to me that in 2012 it was running in 300 milliseconds on the front facing camera of a smartphone, right? And we were pioneers in that. And Nobody. What was the delta there? Was it? Wasn't it like, like kind of coming out of the crisis is when things started, right? Uh, what do you mean by coming out of the crisis? Like coming out of 0809, I think, is when the yeah, like yeah, yeah, sign yeah. yes, yes. on the sign. So this is also at UMKC, which correct. apparently is going to yes. be a trend in this exactly. conversation. Um, the, the mecca of privacy and deep tech in, in the Midwest. Yeah, right? well, MIT what? I mean, really, right. we're talking UMKC here. Right. That's the, the, the predominant. Right. Uh, okay, so the DSLR, like what we're talking about was like 09-ish? Yeah, 0809-ish. Okay, and, and then, then this is 2012. Three years later. Right, we go through the UMKC tech transfer process and we're a commercial entity. And the the vision was people will want to use biometrics on the mobile phone, right? And, and the, this is a totally different time frame because if you remember the HP laptops that had fingerprint scanners at that time, you had to swipe, right? It was not right. something like this where you just, yeah. today you just place it there and it yeah. just works, right? And they weren't too consistent. They if weren't I remember consistent. Correctly. They yeah. weren't uh, right. nearly reliable. Right. All you could use them to is log into Windows. No, no real services used it, right? right. And so I verify was was in 2011 and 12 really forward thinking for the time right the only other biometrics company that had ever worked on mobile was authentic uh, which did by fingerprint scanning based on uh, you know on a 
on a screen without requiring swipe and Apple had promptly brought, bought them, right? right? So we knew that there was going to be something that Apple was going to do at some point or the other, but it wasn't a clearly defined um, need of the market. Right? Yeah, the thumb was the vector and that was kind of right. the end all be all. We hadn't thought about other and, pieces and, of the body. Right, and the we went through a, a long winding journey to trying to find the right application right it's a it's what was a, the initial thought and like oh it, yeah the, it wasn't kind of like defense oriented well at first we thought it was going to be used in airports and immigration control on specialized hardware right. and like what is today clear or something exactly yeah and uh, and then we we learned that and and as a commercial entity selling to government is just a painful process and the go-to-market journey would have been perilous and yeah. long and expensive so we started with the trend of byod Right. So in 2011 and 12, the biggest talking point in enterprise was my employees no longer want to use a BlackBerry that I'm going to give them. Right. And I, they want to use their personal iPhones or their personal Android. Right. And, um, and I'm going to, as a CIO of an organization, I'm going to need to figure out how I keep my company IP and data safe on that machine yep. or rather that device yep. um, without forcing everybody to, to move to an, uh, a BlackBerry. Right. So what, uh, what, the, what we did was we started working with good and AirWatch technologies. And that was incredible for us because they did a lot of validation. And those products were, um, were there to allow a higher level of security on a consumer phone mm -hmm. like an android or an ios and allow people access to secure email mm -hmm. um, files and other things that they would need yeah. to access as part of their job i still remember when i was at merrill lynch people just constantly complaining about how much they hated getting into good right. on their phone right it just like it exists obviously existed for a reason i understood the security capacity of it and all that right. but i just remember people be like i hate this thing i don't know why i needed her her umph her umph right but yeah no that's so, those were the days and we we we, we tried to solve for exactly that pain point yep. like people want to use biometrics to enter an elevated state of authentication where right. you're going to do specific uh things that were sensitive and needed to be controlled by the app right so the yep. difference in iVerify was today and and, and the, the way apple and apple's touch id and face id and similar android products work is that the device owns the biometric and the identity and then brokers it to the to the app whereas in the iVerify model the app itself owned the identity right so there, it, there wasn't a device broker. So the app could decide who to trust and who not to trust. And so, I never knew that. That's interesting. So the, the, the iVerify piece of functionality was embedded directly inside Good. Yeah. Directly inside AirWatch or any other app that we worked with. Right. Yeah. Makes so, sense why you would go on to financial services and correct. things of that ilk. And so Good and AirWatch were great, but eventually not an area where we th thought we would see a lot of growth, being just an add-on on top of Good and AirWatch. Yeah. Right. And this is around the time Apple releases, I believe it was the iPhone 5S with fingerprint um, uh, via Touch ID built in. Mm -hmm. And that triggers a total, um, a significantly larger order of magnitude of interest in what we were doing mm -hmm. from device manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we say yes to every one of them. And we're working literally overnight with Huawei, Oppo, Vivo, ZTE, TCL, you know, uh, Samsung. And yeah. everybody was curious as to how they could bring biometrics to their Android phone because Apple clearly was uh, was demonstrating that people were going to use it and 
and that it was it was a useful feature to replace the three or four digit actually four or six digit pin with a, with a simple touch right yeah was there a clear thought at that point that like the finger is like the it's like the 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 Ford one or something like it was the the V one and like obviously some other biometric marker was going like how did you get to the eye piece because yeah I don't think so we talked the, about that the, yet. the fingerprint was always the 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 reason why I verify used the white blood uh, so the sorry the red bl- uh, blood vessels in the white part of the eye this mm-hmm. ocular uh, ocular blood vein patterns is for a couple of reasons one it's non genetic. Right, so you can actually differentiate between twins, um, unlike a face. Um, wow. Two, the eyes are a very stable feature. They don't really grow and shift and morph unless you get injured, obviously, um, as you age. Unlike a face where it may change or um, or a fingerprint that may be scrubbed, yeah. it's a very stable feature. So like, even if I got just like knocked the fuck out. It just actually makes those veins more prominent, right? So oh, the pattern does not okay. change. You're not generating new blood vessels. You're gotcha. just... Uh, a bloody eye is, yeah. is better for verification, if you will. Yeah, it's even easier. <laughs> exactly. What about death? Um, that is where liveness came in. So we we clearly death is is kind of an interesting extreme example. But yeah. we and had to I protect asked against. It, as if it was just a just a passing question. Right. What about if you know your life ends? Right. But <laughs> in, yeah. So the more realistic scenario was someone using a picture, right? Um, to try ah, to verify. Okay. And we had sure. a very a sophisticated set of very advanced liveness detection algorithms to try to detect if the person or if the image that the camera was seeing was live versus not. Gotcha. Right. And we were very, very advanced in, in, in that. And we had a sort of, we were leading the industry in that. So to go back to why, why eyes, so yeah. clearly, you know, those things, non-genetic, stable feature. Um, and, the, and, and then the, the most important piece was it's the most accurate biometric that does not require any extra hardware. Mm. Fingerprints require the capacitive touch sensor. Right. Iris requires an IR light. Yeah. Facial recognition, even today, Face ID requires Apple to have that special sensor. Whereas we wanted to democratize biometrics and bring it to anybody that had a front-facing camera or a back-facing camera, right? <laughs> so you needed no special hardware and you could, uh, and you could have a software-only biometric without needing any dependency from any hardware uh, sensor. So that was that was the unique feature which enabled us to then, you know, support hundreds of phones coming out in the time period of a year because all we had to do was tune to the camera parameters. We didn't have to build a new sensor, right? Uh, figure out how to how it integrates into hardware and all those kinds of things, right? And then the OEM business is good, but it's. Um, there there were certain challenges there like you know a lot of those partners we were working with were clearly chinese oems and getting them to always pay on time given you know you you invoice them as a tiny little company i could see some ip protection issues as well things along those lines so uh, and what we've learned about china doing all of that is you really want to the right way to do china is to have a big brother right and there are two big brothers really in China. It's uh, Tencent and Alibaba. So, and then we start also, our Series A was all strategics. Our Series A was led by uh, Chihu, an antivirus company out of China, Wells Fargo, uh, the large Yeah, I knew Wells. I didn't know the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Samsung Ventures and Sprint, um, which is uh, local here. And the benefit of that, the way we structured that was all of those were interesting verticals for us to try to go after 
um, in terms of uh, a target market, yeah. that those key partnerships proved useful, right? She who brought the cybersecurity and enterprise security market to us, um, or at least enabled us a channel to get there. Uh, Wells was clearly financial services and banking. And we did the Wells accelerator. And we really, that was very important for us because we really understood the process of how a bank adopts new technology, mm-hmm. right? And Wells, uh, through that, was our first commercial implementation of implementing biometric at the app level, right? So the Wells yeah. was CEO app was where we were integrated, which the uh, small to medium business uh, app that, and clearly that needs to be really secure. And and we were a way to secure that, uh, that the transactions made on that app, as well as the logging in into that app, yeah. um, while requiring no extra hardware and enabling anybody with a smartphone to be able to have a secure authentication experience. Yeah. So it, it was a good use case, one. Two, Wells had enough internal expertise on what we were doing to really validate that this approach works. And that trust translated to every other bank, right? Oh, wow, you're live at Wells? Say no more, right? Um, let me let me actually like pull on that thread a little bit more because yeah. I think there's... I have a good number of listeners that have companies at a stage or advise companies at a stage where they may be considering an accelerator, right? Mm -hmm. Be that like YC. I think we all know why you go to YC. We know why you go to like, you know, Techstars, Target or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know why you do these things. I think there's a general... I think there's an overgeneralization of big bank accelerators and the perspective that they are maybe a waste of time. And in a lot of cases, I think that's not true. And I think you guys are you you guys, you guys in the past, I verify it, were right. a really good example of that not being true. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that you learned that you learned from Toby that you learned through that process that you would advise other founders kind of going through that kind of a thing because right like I, I ran the NBKC one right. but like you could come to me and then I could introduce you to the CEO and right. we could do all that in 10 minutes and mm-hmm. we could be done mm-hmm. right but you're not going to meet the CEO at Wells and right it's, it's a different thing so is there like anything yeah you learned so there? we learned we were not banking and financial services experts right we we were biometrics experts and we had done device yeah. work we had done step up authentication yeah. work so we knew we knew those things and but not how they applied to a bank and how would the bank decide to buy yeah right were you, were you open about that like did you kind of lead with we don't know teach us or did you kind of fake uh, it till you make it well how, since how they, you do that <laughs> well since they participated in our in our financing this sort of came as a package deal as part of that right ah, so we're like that of makes course sense. yeah that we'll do sense. it yeah. and, and okay. see what we learn and gotcha and and figure out what uh, uh what the right um takeaways we, we can take from this here are and we learned a lot so that, that was the it was a different experience for us than yc or others because we were not a pre-seed company with two guys working in a bedroom somewhere right it was a series a company yeah it can it, i remember hearing the news i like i remember the press release or something i think it was in kansas city business journal and i was like they're what 
Wells Fargo accelerator, like Toby and Dawes are going to the Wells Fargo accelerator. Aren't they? They have like an actual business. They they're making right. money. They have and revenue. It was, it was structured for the companies of our stage, right? It's yeah. not like an intense stay there for six months or whatever, yeah. and, and yeah. go do this hands-on Burn process. You, out, right? you know, take so, six years off your life, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, no offense to 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 come. Sometimes those are probably the right fit for certain kinds of businesses I mean, shit, too. I ran one, so hopefully, no offense to them, but yeah. <laughs> but you know, we found that to be the right st- style of program for companies our stage. And we really, the two big things we understood was, one, what are the internal processes at a bank when they decide to buy mm-hmm. a product? And two, what are the internal processes of the bank to establish credibility of a new piece of technology that's never been seen before? It was not like we were trying to sell routers. Right. Um, they understood what that is. They had obviously the right uh, means of evaluating what the right kind of routers were, right? This was a new thing and budgets weren't really always there. So they had to create a budget for it and then decide to buy it. And then as part of buying, establish credibility, Mm -hmm. right? And that was another inflection point for, for iVerify because once we were live in production with Wells, selling to every other bank was was really yeah first much domino. easier right so in the two years since we went from one bank to well over 50 right mm-hmm. uh, of all different sizes and shapes credit unions uh, to AB and AMRO to you know DBS and HSBC right yep and that was that was a that was sort of when we knew we had a legit product that that banks and financial services wanted and could use and and provided value right um and serendipitously that's when we saw that alibaba was doing a lot in the in the biometrics space right the i think we saw jack ma go uh to I think it was the World Economic Forum or some other really prominent event like that and talk about how financial inclusion of the next billion people were going to be enabled by biometrics, right? Hmm. Okay. Because, you know, you've got semi-literate to literate people that may not know uh, how money living on your app is going to be secure and safe to transact with. Yeah. And, um, and they were essentially leapfrogging the other payment systems we saw in the Western world, right? Mm-hmm. Credit cards had never taken off. So Alipay and WeChat were sort of the de facto uh, ways to go from keeping money under your mattress to keeping it in some modern financial institution. Yeah. And that was when we started uh, working with Alipay as a, as a customer, right? We did pilots with them. They liked it. Um, and that was around the time we were also raising our Series B. And we had had some discussions about potentially Alipay participating in that. But that was when they decided that instead of investing in iVerify, it was, it was better as an acquisition. And, and it led to, a, to iVerify joining the Alipay and Ant Financial and Alibaba family. Now it's called Ant Group, of course. And that is a whole different story of excitement and growth and personal growth for me. Um, you were a VC for a minute, my friend. I was, yeah. Yeah. Well, so before we get to the VC piece, because I do want to talk about that, 
what was I mean, doing deals with all those banks you mentioned, right? Like after a certain point, I would think there's a set of muscles you develop, right? Like the, the muscle you, you went to the gym at Wells, right? Like you got got huge, gigantic. You were having right. protein after every, you know, after, after every meeting. And then you go to these other banks pretty much, you know, it's like walking into a different gym. You do kind of similar exercises. You leave same result. Mm-hmm. I would think that the Ant Financial Gym slash doing anything in China is incredibly different. Was that relationship and like establishing that relationship different? Was there anything like unique about the relationship between iVerify and Ant versus or not even the relationship, but just how it came to be like the sales cycle? I'm just fascinated by yeah. China. So I'm, I'm curious. So, remember my earlier point about you want to do China right with a big brother. Right. Right. And Alipay or Ant or Alibaba in general is one of those big brothers. It's yeah. in fact one of two, right? Yeah. Um, there's Tencent and Alibaba. Baidu and others are great, but yeah, Alibaba is the public company with listed on the New York Stock Exchange yeah. and 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 what we learned is when you know when there is reputational risk to potential abuse of uh, of that power that comes with that that big brother status people behave great right so working with alibaba was incredible because we never once got a sense that there was anything nefarious or uh, an attempt to act unethically mm-hmm. right um, they respected our technology they understood how it could help them they already were had a biometrics team ramped up and running and they could see how we would fit in there. Yeah. Um, and after the exit, they bought into our vision so much that instead of us being a department inside of Ant, they actually spun us out as an, as an independent identity venture, right? So that was what became Zolos. So Ant's belief was that identity and innovations and identity are going to be what's most important in enabling the next billion and a half people to be onboarded into the next generation of financial services, right? right? And so... Within a span of a few months, we went from under 30 people in Kansas City, Missouri to being a 200-person company with offices in Hangzhou, China, and Beijing, and Singapore, and San Francisco, and Kansas City, right? Yeah, so, that was such a fun time, dude. It, it, I mean, if, like the nerdy version of like the Super Bowl parade or something for me. Like, I remember when I found out you guys got acquired and I, I was still in school and we had the, you know what One Million Cups is, but a lot of listeners might not. So I'll explain it. Um, but the Kauffman Foundation in Kansas City had had <laughs> RIP since COVID, um, but had a weekly thing where two entrepreneurs would get up on stage and basically just give a pitch and then they would get feedback from experts. And I remember uh, one of our like kind of entrepreneurial leaders in the city got up on stage at the beginning of that. Like, I think it was like got announced on like a Thursday or Friday. I don't remember when it got announced. You probably do. But the next week after it did, he got up on stage and he was like, raw, raw, like Kansas City is a fintech city, folks. We got I verify just exited trade bots having the biggest year they've ever had. Bats just, you know, this, that, the other. And it was just like this. Wow. I was was not even aware of this. There was some energy in the air, man. It was crazy because I was working at Bloom at the time and I was like, fuck you. We're going to be the next one. Like, let's go. (laughs) And then I ended up leaving a little while later, not for any bad reason, but just like didn't quite work out the way we'd hoped. But like it was truly, from my perspective, like an inflection point. 
for the city and not just for finance, but for technology. Like, I don't think for I don't think Fountain City FinTech would have happened if it wasn't for that exit. I don't think oh, I think wow. there's I, don't, I think there's a long list of things in the city that have happened as a result of that, like kind of like second degree results um, that just blows my fucking mind. And I think it just got so much excitement going that like the government start to got started to get it that like this, all of these, uh, you know, innovation initiatives started. So anyways, it just it was a such a cool time. I just remember it viscerally. I can feel it. Yeah. Um, and and being on the inside, we we couldn't believe it either. Right? I'm Here's sure. a deep yeah. tech company building you know, an ability to identify people based right. on that are I pattern layout. Right. And the just, CEO is a, a, basically a farmer. Right. Like right. <laughs> for all intents, right. Toby's like one of the smartest people I've met. Right. But at the end of the day, like the guy might be bailing some hay or something, right. you know, like that's how it grew right. up. So it's, it's just a classic <laughs> innovation story of, yeah. Classic know, Midwestern innovation Midwestern story. Innovation story. Yeah. 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 So the, the impact of, of, of that to to me personally was like holy shit there's potentially a billion people that are going to be using this <laughs> and I have written this right it was in my laptop and my editor yeah. uh, writing this thing and and Never for me what was your laptop the same you know? I know right I was like holy <laughs> shit the power can you write code that's worth you know the X that someone's willing to pay for it it was it was an incredible experience because yeah. Yeah, what, what the personal growth journey that I verify was was for me was very very profound as well right I was writing code I was working on the science I was doing math I was helping sell I was architecting the solution ar- architecting the product right so on an the, the analogy they say is, I think, something along the lines of at a startup in two years, you do five years worth of experience or something like that. Or some, sure. some people yeah, use whatever. different numbers. The numbers are interchangeable, right. it seems like, and, but everybody's and, got their version. That was absolutely true in my case, right? If I had been on a P7 through P10 track at uh, name your large company that has right. those tracks, yeah. I would have been pigeonholed and, yeah. and I would have said, this is outside of your hole. Don't don't go to any other pigeonholes. Right. Stay here. <laughs> Stay here, pigeon. Right. You, you, um, you shall not fly anywhere else. Exactly. And there was none of that, right? And so even as I do this again here at Triple Blind, that is, a, that is something I hold really true to um, to everybody here in that, you know, I, I know what a transformative experience an early stage startup can be. Mm-hmm. And I hope that hopefully I am enabling other people to be able to have that same experience and not pigeonhole themselves. Well, I think you are. I mean, from from the people that I know that work with you and from my experience, I mean, I guess we've never like been on the same payroll or anything, but I feel like I work with you in different ways pretty often. I mean, for full transparency to listeners, I'm an investor and you know, I still barely know what triple blind does, but I just trust the shit out of you. And I know that it's going to do good stuff for the world. So I'm not too worried about it. Um, but let's, so, so 
I verify was a fucking just wild thing, uh, a moment in time. It happened. The exit happened. Um, that, you know, m- momentous day at One Million Cups transpired. And then it was like you started wearing a Patagonia vest and <laughs> running around and talking to people about deal terms and valuations. Tell me, tell me about your time as a VC. And like, wow, yeah. and did you want to do that? Was that like the obvious next thing that you wanted to understand? So I wanted... Uh, you know, I, I go through periodic identity crises, right? As yeah, that's okay, what makes so you now I am a twenty-five-year-old. What do I? What changes, right? Or uh, what does what does a twenty-seven look like, or something like that? So. Uh, Right after the exit, I spent a year in growth and product mode, right? We rolled it out in several countries, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines, all over. And you had platinum on United for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot of travel. I got to a point where I was sleeping better on a plane than in my own bed. I Um, I didn't see you for like... Years. I mean, yeah, yeah. Liter- literally. Dude. I mean, we're not like best friends, but I would I try to see you as often as I can. I right. think I literally didn't see you for like two years. Right. Right. Because I was always working elsewhere. Yeah. Right. Um, now, what what happened was so I, I always the the thing that's my biggest strength and my biggest weakness is my curiosity. Right? There are things I have done just to explore my curiosity. And I needed to experience it firsthand as opposed to getting a secondhand account of what it's like, right? Right. So that is sort of the happy circumstances that led to the VC role. Ant had just done a Series C and Series C for Ant was $14 billion at 150 billion, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I remember that, I remember that because that was the year that everybody was like, oh, you wouldn't believe the money. You wouldn't believe the VC dollars going into FinTech. Right. And then you take out Ant and it's like plus 2%. It's like basically nothing. Right. Like no dramatic, like definitely not an exponential increase. But right. if you put the Ant number in, exponential increase right. and then some. Yeah. That and was, so that was, a, that was a big raise. That was the Series C? Yeah, it was Series C oh for Ant. God. Yeah. Uh, what a world. Yeah. China is a whole different animal, it, right? Very much so. And we were the only American company that had bought it. Right. The only one. Yeah. Wow. I verified. So we brought them to Kansas City of all places. Yeah. Right. And that's, I remember this is like a super nerdy deep dive thing, but I think it's really interesting. There were, there was some thing. There was an entity that you told me about when we had coffee, like, Oh, Cepheus. Yes. That, and that is that part of why number one, please explain Cepheus to the idiots like me that barely remember what it is. Right. Um, And was that, part of why there was only one company that had been um not necessarily ant was a young company and you know they they clearly were very active in m&a in in, yeah. in china uh, and broader southeast asia asia sure um but uh it just so happened that we were in the united states and we had a piece of technology and product that they needed yeah. and they decided to do the deal right but that's where i learned about cepheus cepheus stands for cfius committee for foreign investment in the united states and whenever uh, an m a deal with certain ip properties um, is happening between a non-american entity and an american entity it goes through this quasi 
government, quasi-congressional, ultimately headed up by the president entity, right, called CFIUS. And they look at it in terms of the national security interests of the wow. United States. So right? it, like, it crosses the Revolute desk, like that the president of the United States is actually involved yeah, in that. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit, dude. That's so, wild. And, and, you know, we've, we've had deals we wanted to do get rejected by like Ant's next attempt at an acquisition of an American company was yeah. uh, um, what's the thing at CVS at CVS yeah the <laughs> fair enough <laughs> MoneyGram, MoneyGram. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the next (laughs) MoneyGram is the thing at CVS. That's right. I know. You could have given me another fifteen minutes. I would not have come up with MoneyGram. (laughs) I also come up with like passport photos. Right. No, we tried to and tried to buy MoneyGram right after buying iVerify, and that was a deal that just so happened to have been at the same time as there was a president coming in that with that didn't really want deals with China happening, and that was. Yeah. Ultimately rejected yeah. by Stephanie. I think all right. listeners can read between those lines. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, it was a wonderful deal for Ant because it would have put Alipay at every CVS and almost every Walgreens and right. um, across the United States. Right. But life is life. Didn't yep. work out. Right. right. So the, the CFIUS was what I verify had to go through to be able to work with the, the to be able to exit to Ant. And the, 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 um, the opportunity that presented was the, the timing of that opportunity is um, something I'm eternally grateful for. We signed the term sheet uh, early in 2015, and it went through several months of CFIUS review, and it was approved in September uh, 2015, right? Whoa. And that was literally within arguably, you know, two digit days away from the world changing. Right. Yeah. You were from, probably uh, paying more attention to current events than you, than you ever had before. I would right. imagine. So, you know, they, they approve the deal. They put certain conditions on how sure. to be, uh, uh, how to be uh, good custodians of data. But luckily I verified didn't really have data condition, con- uh, data issues, if you will, because all the data was local, right? Yep. We never transmitted any data to a server. We weren't sitting on this honeypot of people eyes and and so compliance with all of those were relatively straightforward for us but uh, the CFIUS process has especially given that I did do a VC role does give me a visceral um, reaction that I don't look forward to yeah uh, I mean it was you you were one of the scratch that you were the hardest working person I think that I know in my life. Like, oh and my God. I, I that mean, is a compliment. Thank you. It, it is a compliment. And your wife is sitting outside. So thank God that isn't just like you're avoiding your home life and we're sitting in your office right now and she's right there. So you're checking all the boxes. But the reason I said that is that like you were le- legitimately, I mean, maybe there's people I have met before that, I don't know, aren't healthy that work harder or something, but you're like the healthiest Harding, hardest working person I've ever met and that I'm friends with. And I remember for, and I don't remember how long it was, but I remember you being maybe bored is the wrong word, but your hands were tied. Like you were basically just not able to do anything for like a year, if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah. So, um, so as I described, you know, Ant did a CUC and they put yeah. Toby and me and, and heading up their global 
CVC efforts, right? Corporate venture capital, off balance sheet investments into yep. Series A2 and beyond companies. And it was arguably the worst time to do that role because the world sort of looked very different than just a few months before when we signed up to do the role, right? Yeah. yeah. So we were going to do deals just like um, we did with iVerify and others, right. uh, investments and, and, and potentially even acquisitions. Um, but we couldn't do that because of not something that that we had any control over. Right, right no. It was China just, became China. Correct. Or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, the CH became a G somehow for right. four years and we were not able to do anything. And, and you know, we had interesting companies all over the world that were doing interesting things. Um, but there were a lot of them in the United States. The specific yeah. investments we were doing were in something that Alibaba called BASIC. B-A-S-I-C stood for Blockchain, AI, Security, IoT, and Cloud Computing, right? Of course, it's an acronym. Right. And <laughs> of course, the irony of BASIC being an acronym. Right. Wow. And BASIC represented the basic technologies on top of which the future of Ant would be built, yep. right? Ant was going to build a blockchain. It was going to be used for remittance and tracking of goods and, and um, potentially even cryptocurrency aspects. Yeah. Um, it was applying AI in all kinds of interesting ways. Um, and I can talk a lot about that. That's a whole different conversation that can happen. And, and it's amazing. I saw the world's most advanced AI in actually Alibaba uh, than I've seen in anywhere else in the Western world. Well, um, I, we're, I want to be halfway respectful of your time and we're already over. So we'll, let's let's do that another time. But I sure. do want to have that conversation security, with you. security, Alibaba faced threats, uh, organized militias of cyber hackers, right? The police would break down buildings of thousands of hackers who were all trying to break into Alipay, right? Wow. Um, and these were essentially an organized um, Chinese graduate program of people trained specifically to break into WeChat or Alipay, right? Yeah, it's the um, internet mafia. It's IoT, which yeah. is, you know, there were, there's clearly people that were uh, what what we started out with was a checkout box that anybody could use even as a street vendor, right? You could just have a QR code, right. took your money. Yep. But there was clearly higher ambitions there in cloud computing. Alibaba, Alibaba had to build its own cloud everywhere it went. It didn't use public clouds. It didn't even use Alibaba cloud. So every country that it operated in, it built its own cloud, right? Financial Whoa. services cloud. And to my knowledge, no, no other company uh, has built a financial services cloud that has... You know, 900,000 purchases per minute, right? Was that a regulatory need? Was that a technical? Like, it was a technical and regulatory need. As an example, um, Alipay installed um, and financial cloud in, in, uh, in a foreign country, let's just say, where uh, they had made an investment in, in the local financial service, uh, local fintech and payments player in that country. Okay. And let's say that local fintech player with their local engineering resources had built a payments that can take 500 transactions per second. 500 payments per second is what their entire system can process. Keep in mind, Visa's at 24,000 right. purchases per second. Sure. So as Alibaba was expecting 
to help in the growth of that local, locally run and operated fintech, they need, knew that that 500 transactions per second needed to go up way, way, way higher, right? Yeah. And many, 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 many right. times. And the reason That's... why in Financial Cloud was so cool was it was battle tested, right? On Singles Day in China every November, it, 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 I think the last stat I heard after I left was like 600,000 purchases per second, right? Oh my God. So, and at the time I was there, it was 400,000 transactions per second, right? So if you think of the amount of compute and infrastructure wow. that needs at just a local level, Alipay had it perfected, right? Uh, and That's so, like when people start talking about like trillions of dollars and I'm just like, I know what a trillion is, right. but I have no fucking concept of what a trillion is. You know, like I, I know what 400,000 right. anything per second is. I get it. But like, what? That's right. an actual thing. That's right. fucking insane. That's unheard of. Right. So it, make, it makes sense. Yeah. So there was that, that technical reason. There was right. often a regulatory reason as well. None sure. of the data from these overseas wallets ever went back to China. Right. Gotcha. So you wanted to operate locally um, without, while observing national data privacy regulation. Right. So Oof. if you encountered a country so if you let's say if you had encountered if you had used a public cloud the challenge you would encounter is how do you serve bangladesh how do you serve Laos? Well, yeah i mean now that you explain it that way the challenges you would encounter seem innumerable right. like that makes a lot of sense now yeah no wonder you dig your own hole for water if you're in that kind of a situation right yeah and so the expectation clearly was alibaba was going to be investing in their growth and right. as they grew they needed to grow not just in the market but also in their technical capability to be able to service um, those additional users and customers yeah so um I think the Indian partner wallet, which was Paytm, um, clearly was doing well over 500 purchases per second across the Indian consumer base, uh, often powered by Ant technology. Right? Mm -hmm. So that technology enablement uh, for financial services is what Ant called TechFin, which was a play on the word fintech, right? Ah, which is now I got to rename the podcast. We made it so far, right? And if you, if you, it, they, they truly meant it, and that they were ants themselves through its cohesive strategy were sort of in the middle of being a fintech themselves and offering first party solutions and services to enabling others to offer on. Offer it on top of their yeah. their technology makes platform. sense, and it's a strategy that worked really well. Makes sense. I mean, uh, yeah, tech fin is actually what it should be. I think just you know, a whole bunch of slightly more elderly white men got involved, and finance comes first. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how the world ended up where it ended up. Um, so in that in that process of. I don't, I mean, it almost like, I know you were working, I know you were doing things, but like your hands were tied and you were kind of doing this walkabout. Is that when you kind of came upon, I know, and I also know you well enough and know some of your mentors well enough to know that there was a kind of fork in the road moment there where you were kind of considering starting something, maybe considering something else, this, yeah, that, the so, other. So how did, how, how did we get to triple blind? Like, how did yeah. you decide to start this thing that I still can't explain to people? Sure. So the challenge we faced at iVerify after the exit was all of the data we needed to fine tune our systems to a local country, to a local population, was subject to privacy regulation, right? And people's eyes look different and, you know, Chinese eyes and Indian eyes and Laotian eyes and Indonesian eyes looked different and we needed to work on reducing our false negative rate, right? Because 
clearly we had used a lot of it was AI and machine learning and statistical matching based algorithms. So we were trained on a certain set of eyes that our our system saw. And so what (laughs) for all my non-technical listeners, what he's talking about is if you've seen the last season of Silicon Valley, he's talking about hot dog, not hot dog. Yes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Referring to the hot dog, not hot dog problem. Right. And so we had a team in Kansas City building a biometric system used in all these uh, other countries in in Asia and Latin America and in in, uh, in Africa and Europe, yeah. but we couldn't ever get any of that data back to Kansas City to be able to just run a neural network fine tuning algorithm, right. right? So that was my first experience, if you will, viscerally firsthand with with privacy. And Ant had this issue on steroids, right? I was uh, I, I was clearly trying to invest in what is now triple blind uh, when I was at Ant in my VC role, right? Ant had Ant was through TechFin enabling wallets and financial services companies and fintechs all around the world to be able to have a better fraud detection system, a, a lower payment rejection rate, a better anti-money laundering system, a better anti-terrorist funding system, or even brokering KYC between countries. Yep. And all of those ran into data sharing issues because they were regulated PII. And yep. a lot of countries were were passing national privacy regulation at the highest levels of government. Right. And a lot of them looked like what is now called data localization or data residency, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning data, PII, PHI, personal financial information generated from citizens of a particular country need to stay physically resident in that country at all times, right? So that really hindered our ability to um, to be able to service those local populations with the latest and greatest. They said, systems weren't learning from each other and getting better, right? Yeah. So if you learned of a new fraud vector in a, in a different country, that wasn't informing your uh, fraud systems in a different country, right? Yeah, it's, it's a money launderer's dream. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was when... Um, I I was in an investments role and the, the I was living in Tel Aviv at the time and the and I looked at the market and what I understood was everybody that's working on privacy were going after something called confidential compute which is an ability to in a public cloud you may have a scenario where one or more companies are sharing the same physical hardware, right? That's just what a public cloud is. Right, yeah. Let's imagine a scenario where JP Morgan Chase and someone else is using the same systems. JP Morgan Chase clearly has a need to keep its data and algorithms safe from other parties that have access to the same physical hardware, right? They might be snooping around. They might be looking at what's going on there. So if you're leveraging a public cloud, you need confidential compute. You need to be able to confidentially operate on your business information without revealing to others who are renting the same physical box from the same cloud provider, and you don't want to reveal anything to them. But that doesn't solve a problem of privacy where I can't access this data because it is regulated a different way. Right. And I can't bring it over. It's right? like a CYA solution. It covers Correct. their ass, but it exactly. doesn't actually solve the problem. Right. So confidential compute is great and is important and necessary, but it doesn't solve the business issue when regulations are the terms of the deal that I have with whoever's uh, sharing, I'm sharing data with or I'm receiving data from, uh, need the data to be treated a certain way, right? So that is sort of what was the genesis of Triple Plane. How do you leverage data while still enforcing data residency and any other data privacy regulation while still utilizing the data for its legal and fully 
to its fullest extent possible, right? So if I'm here in, say, the United States today, I cannot get any European PII or PHI after what's called SHREMS 2. So for those unaware, SHREMS 2 is a judgment uh, by the European Court of Justice uh, that came out in, uh, I think, July of 2020, which turned off uh, a US-EU agreement called Privacy Shield that allowed certain kinds of European data to be to come over to the United States to be processed together, right? Was that for like uh, like criminal reasons? Like what? It what? was for uh, it, it was it was an individual called Max Schrems that uh, had previously challenged uh, European data transfer to the United States, uh, which is what led to the Privacy Shield. So this was the reason why it was called Max or Schrems Two is because it was the second judgment in the same series of uh, cases by the same individual against with the European Union. Okay. And it, uh, the, I believe the reasoning was that any data transferred from Europe to the United States is not safe from being snooped upon by the national security agencies in the United States. So the three-letter agencies will look at European citizen data, yeah. and that is a legal surveillance. Gotcha. Okay. So, and um, I think my original point was that American institutions today cannot legally work on European PII, PHI, and it limits their ability to work across the Atlantic, right? Uh, As a reaction to that, bigger, larger companies are moving their US data to Europe, right? They're going to say, they're saying, we're going to just have one data center in Europe, and I could be a large bank, and I have the resources, and we're just going to use um, servers in Europe that process US data, because US data is not restricted in going to Europe, right? But not everybody can just pick up their servers and move it to Europe, right? Yeah. Um, Certain other responses are just like, we're going to have data silos now, right? European customer data is going to be kept separate and locally in Europe and it's never going to touch US data, right? So in those kinds of situations, what Triple Blind is able to do is enforce GDPR while still allow the data to be utilized in a way that does not violate the privacy of that individual. Per the terms of GDPR. So an American institution can utilize, let's say, USAC, we're a European national, your information to be able to better its anti-terrorist fraud uh, detection algorithm or anti-terrorist funding detection algorithm, rather, without being able to identify that this data belongs to Zach in Belgium and or being able to uh, attribute that back to here's Zach's spending patterns and and I know something about him, right? So you can utilize the data, in especially previously inaccessible data, to build new models for fraud, for alt data sources, for credit underwriting, for newer insurance underwriting models without infringing upon the privacy of the consumers and the individuals as well as the organizations that hold that data on behalf of the consumers and the individuals. Yeah, it's a really good way of painting the upside, but also the downside limitation. I mean, what, what is the stat? It's like 99%. Per, I, don't, I don't actually know what percentage it is, but 99% of money laundering still goes uncaught and un, unseen kind of in our current state of affairs. And that was why I remember you describing it to me the first time or second time or third time. It's probably like fourth time by the time I actually understood it. Um, and I was like, holy shit, this could solve AML or this could solve money laundering and this could be a solution in the AML world. I mean, it's, there is no other solution. Like everything you're talking about, all these data lakes, the silos, everything else is like, it's just a gangster's dream. Right. You know? And and I think 
you know, IBM has a statistic I like around 93% of enterprise data goes underutilized, right? Historically, we've only ever used first-party data, right? I want to build, I am bank A, and I want to build a credit card fraud detection algorithm. I'm going to use my own data to create this credit card fraud detection algorithm. But what that misses is nobody banks at just one bank, right? Right. I may have a credit card from one financial institution. I may have a checking account at a different one. I may have a mortgage at a different one. And so in those cases, you're actually better off using third-party data in addition to first-party data, so you get a more complete view of the consumer and are able to better decide where a fraudulent transaction might happen or where uh, uh, an anti-money laundering or a money laundering transaction may be happening, right? So you, the more variables you're able to use and the more data you're able to use, the better your models are, right? Yeah. And triple blind is on a mission to enable every institution to be able to leverage third-party data while still enforcing the regulations and business terms that govern that data without introducing any additional risk or liability for the receiver or the sender. So let me walk you with an example. Today, the way, um, let's just say a big major bank, it may have been Capital One that decided on on credit cards, receives data from the credit bureaus and then decides what to do with it which is basically run their credit detection or credit uh, uh, algorithm on it to determine, right, um, to determine whether or not I'm credit worthy. Right. And then it decides, okay, DOS is credit worthy and give them a credit card with a $500 spending limit, right? But what happens then is they have hung on to that data. They can, they're now a liability to the credit bureaus because their data is flying around in, in, on, in third-party institutions without them having any way to control it. They're just taking on the liability and the risks of potential third-party abuse, right? The way Triple Blind addresses that is the credit bureau could then could now work with the, the bank without exchanging any data, right? So the bank can run its computations on encrypted data and it can only run the computation that it was explicitly authorized to do. So if I, the credit bureau, authorize the bank to run credit authorization algorithm, all they will be able to do is run a query or a program to determine whether or not I'm credit worthy, but not then have the ability to send me a marketing email or enroll me in some affiliate marketing scheme or use it to determine if I should buy, uh, get a different right. product from that. It's like right. binary pass fail. Correct. Yeah. And, and the answer could be anything. It's not represented in just zero or one answers, but it depends the restrictions on that come from regulation or business terms, right? So you can think of it as enabling digital rights on the data, Mm -hmm. right? If I buy a piece of music from iTunes, it comes with digital rights. I can't just burn it to my flash drive and give it to you, Zach, and say, hey, look at what I just bought. Go listen to this piece of music. Yep. Same thing with Spotify, same thing with Redbox videos. I can't just copy Redbox DVDs and now start my illegal supply of Yeah, you DVDs, just went from right? cutting edge technology to Redbox, but right. I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you still. And so those kinds of digital rights <laughs> yeah. are what Triple Blind enables on any kind of data, not just media, right? So your credit information should be protected in the same ways as a Redbox DVD. Why isn't that a reality today? Yeah, so that, that paints at least, you know, paints for me as somebody that has been talking to you about this and digging into it for a while, a very clear picture of like how it helps, how it helps the individual be protected and to some degree how it helps the corporation in a kind of liability minimization and also the upside of being able to understand, being able to take in more data, right. Mm -hmm. And be able to feel safe about it. Mm -hmm. But the other piece that I 
always find incredibly fascinating about triple blind that I need you to explain because I sure as hell can't is the way that it actually protects the IP of the algorithm. Yeah. So explain that because I yeah. sure as hell can't. That, that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, the, yeah. It's, you, talk about esoteric technology, but this is this actually is technology that has uh, real commercial utility. Well, so, that's that's the thing about all of it. I mean, when you start when you explained it to me the first time, I number one said, "Okay, wait, say everything you just said again." And then after you said it again, I was like, "Oh." This is like so many fucking people get up on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt or whatever and like, we're going to change the world by hyper local, whatever the fuck. But like the first time that you explained triple blind to me, I was like, oh, my God, you're unlocking you're unlocking data that would never have the ability to cross these borders. Right. That in and of itself, I think, is world changing. But the idea that all of these algorithms and all of this IP that's been developed could actually go outside of those walls as well and have safety associated with like it's actually could fucking change the world. Like and not in a, you know, Silicon Valley. We're up on stage with our little, you know, microphone in our ear thing looking like the, you know, looking like Steve Jobs up on stage with our, you know, all of those kind of tropes. But it really could change the world. So sorry, I just got really excited there before you even explained the thing that you were going to explain. But yeah, it gets me going. Sure. So, (laughs) you know, when an algorithm operates on data in a local machine, um, it's a visible transaction, right? The algorithm sees the data, the data sees the algorithm. And we're all happy and we do our business. But there are certain cases where the algorithm is either... So neat is is so sensitive because millions or even potentially in certain cases billions of dollars have been invested in the invention of the algorithm. And second, you don't want to. It may be an AI algorithm on which lots and lots of sensitive training data was used, right. and you don't ever want to run a risk of having the training data be revealed, right? So algorithms on their own as just, if I just give you a a, a trained deep neural network, you can just look at how I built the neural network. You can run all kinds of nefarious processes on it to try to determine was DOS's data in this database, and if so, Hmm. let's try to regenerate it, right? So that can be, in healthcare, it's a big deal because for every patient whose data is reconstructed, even from a trained algorithm, it's a $50,000 fine under HIPAA, right, in the United States. if, and those kind, those while AI in healthcare, AI in financial services is great, some of that innovation has failed to completely capitalize on the market potential because of sensitivity around is my IP safe right. or is someone going to regenerate or rather is my model going to leak any of the training data that was used, right? So we invented a concept called encrypted algorithms. So it's essentially the genesis of the name triple blind, where the algorithm gets encrypted. What that does is it keeps the IP in that algorithm safe from being revealed to the data owner. It keeps the training data, use the algorithm, if it's an AI algorithm, safe from being ever regenerated by the consumer of the algorithm. But the algorithm, when it's working on data, the data also stays encrypted. And the novelty of the encryption there is it's impossible to decrypt. There is no decryption key. Even with quantum computers working for decades, you would never be able to reconstruct that original data. We've actually got a mathematical proof for anybody interested. So 
therefore, you can have these kinds of transactions where an encrypted algorithm meets encrypted data and they produce the right answer without either side learning anything about each other, right? And obviously, the algorithm, therefore, has no risk of getting replicated by the licensee of the algorithm. The data owner takes no risk of the data potentially leaking. Uh, and this is actually compliant around the world. So imagine a scenario where I build an algorithm and I am serving it out of a public cloud. Let's say I want to serve this uh, this. Uh, anti-money laundering algorithm to a bank in the Philippines, right? The challenge I have is, let's say I'm using AWS or Google Cloud or any of the other cloud vendors, they may not have data centers in the Philippines, right? So the Philippine consumer data that I need in my algorithm to be able to determine if if a transaction is fraud can't come to me because it is subject to data residency rules. But I've got this wonderful algorithm, right? So triple blind, because it can keep the data encrypted with essentially a one-way encryption, meaning it can't ever be decrypted. Mm. And on the other side, on the algorithm side, the algorithm stays encrypted, can facilitate this exchange to occur because the Philippine, this is compliant with Philippine data residency rules. The encrypted data leaving the border in a way that can never be reconstructed does not violate data residency. In fact, it enforces it. The data never moves. Mm. And similarly, now, I, as the algorithm owner, was serving it out of an availability zone in Japan, can actually service the Philippines without needing to set up a local data center, right? So the total addressable market for these algorithms is effectively the world because you can enforce privacy of the IP and the training data on the algorithm side and the data it's operating on on the other side. And the reason why we call it triple blind is because triple blind also never has the ability to see the company and the product itself never has the ability to see any of the data or the algorithms used, right? So blind to the data, blind to the algorithm, and blind to the result. And has nothing to do with three blind mice, it turns out. (laughs) Look at that. (laughs) Just happens to work out that way. I mean, it's a... You know, all all of these words that are used to describe like monumental shifts in the world, I don't think encompass this because it levels, at least in my experience, like not in my experience, I don't have any fucking experience in my brain. I think of it as leveling the playing field when it comes to so many of the things that matter in society, right? So I don't know how much you're able to talk about your early customers, but let's say that, or early partners, but let's say hypothetically one of them is a medical provider, right? And a lot of these medical providers have algorithms that they've put millions and millions, if not billions of dollars into developing. And that algorithm could dramatically improve the healthcare that anybody's receiving, right? Mm -hmm. In the Appalachians Mm -hmm. or in some outskirts of China or wherever, right? Anywhere, Antarctica. But the concern, at least the way I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is exactly what you said, right? It's this concern of reverse engineering. It's this concern of... Original training data leakage. Yeah, original training data leakage, a term that I would not have come up with, but what I was trying to say, uh, just all of these potential concerns, right? A lot of them are contractual. A lot of them are lawyers worrying about if-then statements that could hypothetically happen. And what you're basically telling me is... You're taking all that concern out. You're giving the ability for this algorithm, be it from a hospital, be it from credit underwriting, be it whatever this thing is that, you know, only the millionaires and the billionaires maybe had access to before. You put triple blind out in the world and find, you know, once it's really out there in kind of a ubiquitous way, 
you can go to a shitty hospital in the hood and if you are you know concerned about whatever form of cancer you're able to get that test and have an algorithm run that you never would have access to otherwise right absolutely okay yes and so that's you articulated really well uh, but that's when you have the algorithm Right. Uh, triple blind also enables the training of those algorithms using data that you've never seen before. For example, imagine that medical provider is in the Midwest and sees predominantly Midwestern populations that are potentially sicker and older than the average population. Yeah. Right? Or just white. Like, right. yeah, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of different dynamics there right. where we tend to silo ourselves as a culture. Right. Yeah. And so in that situation, that algorithm will perform really, really well on the data that is the same profile as the patient that they've seen, but not on, you know, any other types of populations. So inherently, first party data is always biased, right? I only have data for the people that I serve and they clearly have biases. So to reduce that bias in and build a fairer, more responsible, more ethical AI, I need to be able to work with third party data sources and leverage those third party data sources to build this algorithm. And that is an important part of what Triple Blind does too. You can now access data that's you know, in Europe while still enforcing GDPR, that's yep. in Canada while still enforcing Pipetta while in yeah. Russia enforcing or California, Russian which apparently is now exactly. a different country. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and build a better, more, more, uh, more, a, a more, a less biased, a more accurate algorithm that generalizes da- better to data it will see out in the field. Yeah. Right. There are no fair and ethical AI. There are usually no fair and ethical AI uh, requirements on most algorithms today. In healthcare, there are some. In financial services, you potentially have, you could potentially build an algorithm where every, every black person is treated as a as a fraudster. Yeah, Let's a co is example. a thing, but it doesn't go far enough. Right. Yeah. So it is really important for, for AI developers to consider um, how biased their first party data is yeah. and how to support to reduce that bias by sourcing third-party data. Yeah. I mean, I think about the potential, I mean, the, the, as I guess I just kind of outlined, like the potential in healthcare seems obvious. The potential in finance seems so broad it maybe is almost hard to focus which i know you and i have had some conversations about like dear god almighty where do we start in all of this insanity but like elections in some of the you know i haven't watched the the what's the movie called the social social dilemma um but i understand it so i didn't want to watch it because it would just piss me off but it seems like you could solve some pieces of that too right like it seems like there's this really long list and litany of gigantic social problems that exist in the world today that are a result of data silos, that are a result of lack of access to these different things that we're talking about, Um, which leads me to an actual question, not just talking about it. Where are you focused right now? Like if people are listening and wanting to, because I think I think just about everybody listening in some way, shape or form could apply triple blind to their life is that's the hardest part is like, I'll have a conversation with somebody and I'll be like, have you talked to triple blind about that? And they're like, what's triple blind? I'm like, well, let me tell you. But for the sake of maybe even just like a little commercial, like what are the industries you're focused on right now? What are the specific use cases in those industries that you want to kind of have conversations with folks about? Sure. So we're the way I would outline our focus today is 50 percent in 
healthcare and 40% in financial services and 10% in enabling AI startups get access to training data, right? If I'm an AI startup and I, my ability to build that AI is not restricted in my ability to think about a new algorithm, right. but where do I go get the data? Right. I face those pain points firsthand. You know, even I verify struggle to get training data, right? So in the, in the healthcare vertical, what we're focused on is what we, is data sharing of any and all kinds of data for any and all kinds of purpose as long as uh, as long as those that's the purpose uh, outlined in the business terms here's what I mean by that today if I were to try to share without triple blind my data and let's say the data is EKGs or genetic data or biomarker data or biometric data, I can't because those are inherently identifiable data sets, right? Mm -hmm. Your biometric can identify you out of a million people potentially. Your genetic sequence can identify you out of everybody in the world. Yeah, we are snowflakes. We're all individuals. Right. So, you know, the, the... the, the unique thing about how triple blind approaches the problem is we can de-identify any kind of data in real time without any human intervention and allow it to be used by a third party, right? So that enables what you would call data liquidity mm-hmm. in in healthcare, right? I want to use and leverage data. And this is a solution in, in a way that I can do that without any additional risk or liability because I'm not risking my patients getting re-identified or I'm not risking potential abuse of the data, right? Um, And then the second use case in healthcare is remote diagnostics delivery. You just identified potentially, let's say, advanced AI algorithms that diagnose a certain disease quicker, more accurately uh, than than existing solutions or manual doctors looking at the diagnostic data. Then how do I then license that to third parties without taking on the re-identification risk present from model data leakage or getting my IP vulnerable to being stolen, right? Mm-hmm. And then when I do license those algorithms, how do I then keep the data they are inferring upon, they're, they're pre- running predictions on, safe from uh, from potentially being reverse engineered, right? So how do I assure the licensees of my algorithm uh, that I'm not going to be copying and taking away their data, right? Um, in financial services, use cases span all the way from bridging commercial and investment banking at the same bank in ways where, you know, there's arguably a Chinese wall between the two. Certain kinds of information can flow between the two sectors, yep. whereas, you know, certain other kinds can't. So yeah. that's the uh, internal use case. Yeah. There's external use cases with I am a credit card fraud detection AI company or I'm a... Uh, financial services network, and I want to source third-party data to be able to train a better, a, a more accurate algorithm that generalizes better on newer data I've never seen before. Yeah. But my the financial institutions I want to source data from are really conservative, and they don't want to just say, here's all my data in a flash drive, go to what you want with it, right? Yeah. So I want that assurance that I can't abuse the data even if I wanted to or tried to, and Therefore, the source, the, the, the sender of the data is taking on no additional risk or liability. Um, on, the, um, on the last side, it is enabling the, what you would call an innovation sandbox, right? A hmm. bank or a financial services company wants to work with many, many partners. And the longest part in those discussions to work with a third party is the data sharing agreement. Yeah. How are you going to get access to my data? So triple blind can enable uh, 
that conversation to grow from six months to two weeks because now that partner is working on real data without ever having the ability to take that data and use it for some other other unauthorized purpose. The funny part is that we skipped over all of the work that you've done on COVID too. You know, that's, that's the other part of all this, but I think the, the financial piece, I think the healthcare piece is just fascinating. I think for listeners, hopefully you all are hearing and have experienced, like I have minimal banking experience, um, compared to, you know, many, but even in my few years in specifically in banking, not just FinTech, but in banking, it blew my mind, the amount of data that is siloed like by floor, even like when I was at MBKC, very forward thinking tech forward bank, but you have all the mortgage data over here. You have all the kind of deposit data over here. Mm -hmm. They don't really talk to each other. You don't even really know if one, if, you know, a deposit customer has a mortgage or if a mortgage, you know, vice versa, any of that. So the low hanging fruit of even, we talk about KYC, right. But then we pretty much just ask like, Hey, have you ever lived at this address? Have you, you know, like the actual KYC that we perform in society today is better than nothing, but for all intents and purposes, bullshit from my perspective, like very, the number of times that I answer questions that anybody could answer. And then they're like, Oh yeah, you must be Zach. You know, it seems like there's an incredible amount to solve there too. Yeah. And especially a problem in, in emerging markets. Uh, So in, I've worked in countries where typically the standard for KYC is a proof of identity and a proof of address, right? right? But we take the address for granted in Western economies, right? I've seen addresses like 50 meters south of the yeah. yellow water tank in Yeah, the fact that we village. live on streets, we're like, yeah, right. we live on streets and like and there's a number and there's a name, right. uh, not the rest of the so world. So the proof of address can be the most, one of the most challenging pieces of that, right? So um, I think the innovations in, in that part of the the world that I'm really excited about is derived credentials, right? Yeah. Someone KYCs you, and then how do you then borrow and ping off of that KYC to then uh, offer the services to what is what would be called, you know, uh, not included in financial services uh, currently people, right? So finan- yeah. how do you drive financial inclusion in emerging markets? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the potential to bank the underbank, the potential, like, it's just, I'm honestly so sick of the word democratization in the world in which we live. Like everybody, like Robin Hood's democratizing access to, you know, stock purchases. And then we've seen how well that's gone. But like democratization in the case that we're talking about right now, like, we're pulling people out of poverty. We're pulling people up by their own bootstraps and actually giving them bootstraps to pull on. Like this is, this is the fucking future, dude. Like this is, and I've never had anybody that I had, well, there, I have two angel investments in my life and this is one. And it partially it's because I love you and I trust you as a human. But the other part of it is like, if this works, dude, like, I don't even know if I want my money back. Like, I just want this to work for the sake of humanity. Like the world could be a dramatically different place and in drastically improved place. Like I could see a world where my dad doesn't go through bankruptcy when I was a kid, if this had existed at that point, you know, like I think back wow. about like how my childhood would have been different if triple blind existed, how the fucking 2016 election would have been different had triple blind existed. We don't need to go there right now, but I just, I'm really really glad you're doing what you're doing. Um, and I know we're over time. So I want to end with the last question, which is kind of twofold. 
really one is just what can the listeners do to help you to help triple blind uh, and the listeners being regulators, students, fintech nerds, you know, bankers, all of these people that are interested in the things we're talking about. Uh, and then the second piece is if they can help with those things, where can they get in touch with you and how can they learn more about triple blind? Great. Uh, so first off, thanks for having me here. It's an honor. Hey, we're, um, in, we're in your office, dude. You invited me in, but th- <laughs> thank you for having me here. And uh, so I think to, to the first part of your question, how can, how can people help triple blind? If there is, if you're struggling to get access to data, right? You, you know, you can do something unique or novel or interesting with the data and it's, you're struggling with where do I start with getting the data? Troubleblind can help. Um, and so please, uh, you know, book a demo with us or or write to us. Uh, we're at uh, at Troubleblind AI on on Twitter. Um, and personally, for me to reach me, I am at rdasxy on Twitter and dos at Troubleblind.ai on my email. Boom. And the website's Troubleblind.ai and Triple Basically, if you type in Triple Blind, it'll forward you to TripleBlind.ai and you can find everything you need. I think people can tell I'm an investor now. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, thank you for the time. This is I love getting to hang out with you. I'm so glad you got vaccinated so that we could actually do this in person. Like I missed I missed. This, I am so, so thrilled. This is the the vaccination's been the most exciting thing in my life in the last 12 months. It's a weird world we're living in. You're no. raising rounds, doing big deals, and the vaccination's the most exciting thing in your life <laughs> but you know 2021 right and then we got to do another one of these because we didn't get to talk about the work you've done with the world health organization we didn't get to talk about any of the other stuff that you've done in an incredibly small amount of time so this is this is this is episode one and we got to do at least number two and maybe you know a couple hundred more i look forward to it all right thanks zach I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Daz, CEO at Triple Blind. I've included pertinent links to find Daz and learn more about Triple Blind in the show notes. Again, I can't thank you all enough for sticking with me through 50 episodes. I can't thank my guests enough who have taught me so much along the way. I appreciate you all. Here's to 50 more. This episode, again, was brought to you by vSum. Go to v-sum.com to learn more and apply to be part of the next event. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and go start a podcast. If I did it, you can do it. Probably much better. Go and ship, my friends. Go and ship. Until next time.